Well, this morning we're in John 3, back in John 3. We'll hopefully finish this today, if not this section today, through verse 15 about Nicodemus. Because that's what we're looking at. This man, Nicodemus, is talking to Jesus, and he's talking about the most important issue, being born again. Nicodemus, you're not going to see heaven if you are not born again. None of us are. You must be born again. That's Jesus' message. This rocks his foundation to hear this. Uh, Nicodemus hearing this just is... uh, Wow, this is new. This is different. I've not uh, thought about this or heard this. But the point is, Jesus, uh, Nicodemus is like a lot of people. They admire Jesus. They uh, respect Jesus. They uh, sing songs about Jesus. Not saying he did that, but many people do that. And a lot of churches today, they're doing that. Uh, praying to Jesus. Reading Bible verses about Jesus. A lot of admiration and even worship of Jesus, and yet they don't really know Jesus because admiration is not enough. Admiration doesn't save you. Respect for Jesus does not save you. Does not mean you're going to go to heaven just because you say nice things about Jesus. Look in John 2. John chapter 2, verse 23 and 25, that's where this section started. It says, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, talking about Jesus, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew all men, verse 24 says, He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. This crowd, admiring, respecting, saying they believe, but Jesus says, uh, John tells us, Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. They were not going to heaven just because of their verbal response and actions toward him. Then John goes on to give us an example of the kind of man he is referring to in 24 and 25, and that man is Nicodemus. You see in verse 1 of chapter 3, Nicodemus is a very religious man. He is a man who believed the Bible. He is a man who was a ruler of the Jews. He was a man who was a Pharisee. He was a man, verse 10 says, who was a teacher in Israel. Uh, Jesus, um, he was very serious about his spiritual life. That's the point that we've sought to make these last few weeks. He had high regard for Christ. You see that in verse 2. Rabbi, he calls him a very respectful title. Rabbi, uh, we know that you have come from God. No one can do these signs unless God is with him. And Jesus, because he knows what's in every man's heart, he answers a question that's not even asked. He says in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can be as religious as you want to be, but you must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. Unless there is a supernatural cleansing a spiritual cleansing from within. The Spirit does a transforming work within you. You will never get into the kingdom of God. Verse 5, you must be, notice, one born of water and the Spirit cannot enter the kingdom of God. We showed you last time Ezekiel 36. We read that earlier in the service, speaking of that new covenant language, but speaking of the fact that we must be cleansed from the inside. A work of the Spirit must happen. Jesus says again in verse 7, do not be amazed that I said that to you. You must be born again. Nicodemus doesn't quite understand it. He's marveling, we're told in verse 7. Then in verse 8, we talked about this verse last week. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. He is trying to show the, the nature of this, the mystery of this, 
uh, wind and spirit, the same word, pneuma, play on words here, but the idea is when the spirit, the spirit like the wind, you don't know where it's coming from, you don't know where it's going, but you see the results of it. The spirit, we're seeing here, this regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is like the wind. It blows where it will, where God wills it to blow. And that's the comparison that he's making there. When the Spirit moves, you see the effects. You don't see it happening, but you see its effects. Like wind that blows, you see the effects of it. You don't see the wind. You may feel it, but you don't see the wind. Turn to Ecclesiastes 11.5 just to see a cross-reference to that from the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes 11 verse 5. Ecclesiastes 11.5, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Solomon talking about the wind and the spirit blows where it wishes. We don't control it. We can't tell it what to do. We can't uh, create the environment for it. We can't uh, uh, pick the location for it. Uh, you can preach the gospel, and you may, the Spirit may blow, or the Spirit may work in the person you're talking to, and He may not. You cannot control that. I just preach the gospel, you just preach the gospel, and God says He will do the work. And you don't see that coming. You can't manipulate that. You can't make that happen. You can't create the the right environment for that to happen. That is a work of God. And that is the point that uh, John is making, Jesus is making with that illustration. I see the effects, but I do not see the working happening when 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 it happens. Richard Caldwell and others put together this list from 1 John. I just want to uh, build on it a little bit with some things. But these are some evidences of the working of the Spirit. These are some evidences from 1 John of one who is born of the Spirit. That's our word here, born of the Spirit. John gives us those evidences. Turn to 1 John just for a moment. 1 John. Because what this, these verses tell us, when the Spirit works... In someone's life, that life is changed. They were once spiritually dead. They now become spiritually alive. First, let's look at 1 John 5, 1. 1 John 5, 1. And I'm going to expand on this list a little bit from what others have put in it. But let me just start with this one. 1 John 5, 1. Notice this. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born, that's our John 3 word, is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. In other words, you believe because you are born of God. That's the reason you believe, this verse is saying. The person that believes that Jesus is the Christ is, because, is one who gives evidence that they are born of God. In other words, someone comes along and says, I'm a Christian, but I believe that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers, which is Mormon teaching, or the teaching of some other cult about Jesus. We would say that is evidence that you may not be born of God to think that. One who is born of God will have a right understanding of who Christ is. They will have a right doctrine about who Christ is. They may not understand everything about Christology, but they will understand that, that this is the Messiah, this is the Christ, this is God's Son, this is the one who came, who is God. That is very Important. He gives that understanding. The Spirit doing that work gives that understanding, shines that light into that person. 
You remember when Jesus was asking the question of his disciples, who do men say that I am? And people were saying all kinds of things. Peter answers and says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says to him, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. No man told you that. That came from God. One who is born of God is one who has a right understanding of Christ and believes in the right Jesus. The right Jesus. Not the false Christ, but the true Christ. He gives you an understanding and a love for Him. You desire Him and you love Him and you trust Him. This is continuous action believing You continually believe this about Christ. So that's the first evidence. The second one, chapter 4, verse 7. 1 John 4, 7. What am I doing? I'm showing you where the Spirit has blown. Showing you where the Spirit has done its work. In a person's life. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved... Let us love one another. That's what we're talking about now. You have a love for other believers. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is, John 3, born of God and knows God. One of the uh, truths about a Christian is they have a love for God, and they have a love for for the children of God. They have a love for those who are born, others who are born of God. Uh, a love for the church, a desire to be with other Christians, uh, a desire to be with the Lord's people, that gives evidence that you've been born of God. When somebody says, I don't want to be around other Christians, you have to question yourself. Am I born of God? That I don't want to fellowship and be around God's people. It's very important. No one has to give you a lesson about this. This just comes. You know immediately, I want to find a place where other people believe what I believe. I want to be around people who think like I think and desire the Word of God like I desire it. I want to be around people who love God and love His Word. We're all organically connected. The Holy Spirit connects us all. We are the body of Christ. That's something God does. He places you into it. When you're born of God, you're placed into the body of Christ. Thirdly, this deals with the practicing of sin. 1 John 3, 9. It takes some explanation here, but stay with me on this. No one who is born of God practices sin. That's the continual, this is 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born, that's our John 3 word, no one who is born of God practices sin because his, God's seed, abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. The word practices present tense. It means uh, uh, that I just keep sinning, uh, that that becomes the characterization of my life. It's present tense. In other words, I have a love for righteousness now. I have a love for righteousness, and I cannot keep on sinning by way of practice or characterization. I have a desire now for obeying God. I have a, a love for obedience now that I did not have before. I have a new nature within me. Uh, My life changes. My thinking changes. My heart, my will changes. My lifestyle changes. Understand this, it's progressive and at times it's painfully slow. But that new nature, that new nature does have an effect on my lifestyle. And it may be a slow change, but my new nature does begin to affect lifestyle and habitual practice of things and the pattern of my life. 
It does begin to do that. Before you were saved, it was just sin all the time and never feel bad about it. You sin all the time and never felt any guilt about it. Now there's a desire not to do that. A new nature that desires not to do that. A new flavor, a new direction of my life. Here's an illustration, okay? Follow me on this. I don't know who came up with this, but it's an excellent way to think about this. Breathing is natural. Holding your breath is not natural. We can hold our breath. Some people can hold it longer than others, but at some point you have to breathe because that's natural. I have to do what's natural. Before I became a Christian, if you had taken this book, before I came to Christ, if you had taken this book and said, hey, hey, you need to do what this book says. You need to live how this book says you should live. You need to love what this book tells you you should love. You need to desire the things this book tells you to desire. This should be your pattern of living. If you had handed this to me and told me that, that would be like holding my breath because it's not natural. It would not have been natural to me. Hold my, I'd just, it'd be like holding my breath for me to try to do this before I became a Christian. If you told me to go to church before I became a Christian, it'd be like holding my breath. What was natural for me before I became a Christian was to live selfishly, to live for myself. That was like breathing. Just do what I want to do. Live how I want to live. That was natural. Now, since I've been saved, everything's turned around. Everything's turned around. I can still, as a Christian, I have a new nature now, and I can still live in sin in times, And I still do sinful things even as a Christian, but now those things are not natural to me. A new nature, now I have new desires. My new desires are not the same as what I used to do. I have different desires. I desire what this book says. What used to be holding my breath is now breathing. It's now breathing to me. It's now desiring something that is consistent with the new nature that is within me. It's not, no longer is it the old nature. I have this new nature. It doesn't mean I don't ever sin. It doesn't mean I don't ever fail. I want to do what's right. I want to do what the Bible says. And there may be times when I treat you bad. And there may be times when I do something wrong. And there may be times when I even justify what I just did. But at some point, I need to breathe again. At some point, I need to breathe again and make it right with you and with God. Because that's not natural for me to do something against you and do something sinful and justify it and just keep on going like nothing's wrong. That is like holding my breath now as a Christian and I know something's not right and I want to make it right. And I may go for a period of time of holding my breath, but at some point, my conscience, at some point, I want to be right with God. At some point, I want to make things right. I want to breathe again. You follow me? That is what John is saying. Before I was born of God, habitual practicing of sin was natural. Now that I'm born of God, habitual practice of sin is not natural. It's still there at times, but it's not where I want to stay as a Christian. I never thought like that before I was born of God. I just thought everything was okay. I will just live that way and go my lucky way. Never thought one thing about it. That's just a way to think about this. It doesn't mean we don't ever sin. You can't look at that passage and say we never sin. We know that's not true. But I don't want to. I don't want to. That is evidence of being born of God. 
That is evidence of having that seed he's talking about there in you. That is an effect of the Spirit blowing on you (laughs) in your direction. So obedience becomes the desire and the pattern and sin becomes the exception. Before obedience was the exception, now sin is the exception. I'm just not as comfortable as I once was with sin. The fourth one I would take you to, go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Okay, there's our word born again. We overcome the world. What does this mean? And this victory has overcome the world. It's our faith. Think about this. We live in a world that has a value system. We live in a world that thinks thoughts and attitudes and priorities and standards of conduct. They are all contrary to what we as Christians hold. We can look at our world and see this all the time. We can see the worldview and the Christian world, the world's view and the Christian's view, worldview. We see them coming at each other. We recognize the world has an agenda. We recognize that the world has values and the world has morals and all of those things. We can see that in the world so clearly. The world is constantly bombarding you and I, trying to lure us in, trying to tell us, hey, come over here, do this. Hey, think this way. Hey, believe this. Hey, don't do that. Don't go to church. Do this instead or whatever. The world is always always trying to pull on us and lure us and entice us. And what he's saying here is one who is born of God overcomes all of that. You follow me? Overcomes all of that by faith. I don't always feel it. It's always... That sounds good, but God says this. My faith says I'm going to believe God and not the world. That's overcoming the world. That's living above the world. One who is born of God lives above the world. That's what it means to overcome the world and by faith saying no to the world and yes to God. That's one of the evidences that the wind has blown. Is it uh, 2 Corinthians 10.5? You don't have to turn there. We destroy speculations and every lofty thing that rises up against the knowledge of Christ. We bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 10.5. That's what we're doing all the time. The world's system, the world's philosophies, the world's ideas, the world's books, the world's literature, the world's entertainment, all of those things trying to suck us in. And overcoming the world means that I don't cave into that. I stand firm in that, not because I'm such a strong person with a lot of resolve. No, it's because one who is born of God can do that. And desires to do that. He may fail at times, but he gets right back up because he wants to breathe again and do the right thing. He's been given this faith in in the new birth, and this faith overcomes the world. It's very important. Very important. Why why don't I cave in? Why, why, Why do I keep on going? It's so hard. Why do I keep on going? Because I'm born of God. This isn't a man-made faith. This is God putting this faith in me and strengthening me to stand firm. And so, you get persecuted. What makes you stand up? What What makes you stand for biblical truth in this world when it's so unpopular and you're going to get ridiculed for it, and you, could not, you might not get a certain job or a certain school or a certain anything. Why, why, what makes you stand to overcome the world to, in the midst of that persecution? It's because you're born of God. 
and you, I'm going to live above that. And I'm going to believe God and not the world. As tempting as it is and as much pressure as it is, I want to soar above all of that and say no to that and press on in Christ. That's a very significant thing to be born of God. It really is. You can move out of, move out of um, 1 John for a moment and flip over to Galatians 5.16. Another evidence of where the Spirit has blown. Another evidence of where the Spirit has moved and worked in a heart. Galatians 5.16. But I say, and you're familiar with this, but I say, walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5.16. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. You know that battle. That's always going on inside of you. Spirit and flesh battles. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh, and here they are. The deeds of the flesh are evident. And this is just a partial list. But this is how the flesh manifests itself. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who continually practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do I fall into these sometimes? Of course. But that's holding my breath when I do that. I want to breathe. And therefore, the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So you see, this is what the Spirit produces. You see what the flesh produces. You see what the Spirit produces in us. And there's other internal evidences of the effect of the wind blowing, the effect of the Spirit working in the heart. The, the hard heart becomes a soft heart. Pride is replaced by humility. The desire to seek reconciliation and extend forgiveness to others I want to be right with others and not in conflict with everybody. I want to get sin out of the way. I want to stop having a bitterness in my, a nature of, of bitterness and be someone who forgives. I don't want to be someone who sows discord and division, but I want to be someone who is a peacemaker, someone who is not self-centered, but someone who is Christ-centered. These are evidences that the wind has blown in your life, my life. Evidences that I am born of God. And folks, that's the effects. That's the effects. And I don't say them to cause doubts in your mind as you're a Christian or not, but you always want to hold that up. God, am I truly born of you? And see the importance of 1 John. One who is born of God loves God. One who is born of God loves Christ. Who believes right doctrine about Christ. Doesn't practice habitual sin. But seeks to breathe the new air of the Spirit in his heart and mind and life. Seeks to overcome this world. These are the marks of a believer, marks of a true believer. Nothing is, where none of us are perfect. We all fall way short of that. We'll only see that in heaven. But those are the effects. Those are the effects of the wind that you cannot see, but you see what it does. And I don't know where the wind's going to blow, but I, just, I would tell you, if you don't think you're a Christian this morning, I would say, just cry out to God. God, I see these things. I don't think that's me. I don't think that's me. God, please blow on me. 
blow into my heart. So, verse 9 of John 3. Back to John 3, verse 9. In verse 9 of chapter 3, how can these things be? There he goes again. How can these things be? He's asked those questions. He's been amazed. How can these things be? I'm not familiar with these things. I think it's almost in a question at this point. I think he's, he's asking for direction. He's making a plea. How can the new birth happen? How can I experience it? Go down to verses 11 and 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Verse 12 says, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Here's what Jesus says to help Nicodemus with this question. He says, hey, you need to listen to me very closely, truly, truly. You're just holding the empty bag of human traditions. The real issue, folks, get this. The real issue is you do not believe it. You make it sound like it's an issue of understanding. It's not an issue of understanding something. You just won't believe it. You just won't see it. You just won't accept it. Verse 13, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Listen, believing is the issue here. Understand this. When you get in debates with people, it's never an issue of more evidence. You can always assume it's an issue of unbelief. Men suppress the truth. Things are known about God. They suppress the truth. We live in a world of truth suppressors. God has revealed things and they choose to suppress it. Don't think evidence is the answer. Don't think, I'm not saying in every situation a little evidence might help here and there, but the point is unbelief is the, is the issue. And that's what he's telling Nicodemus here. The real issue is you do not believe it. You will not believe it. It's not a matter of your understanding it. You just will not accept it. Look at John 8.43 for a moment. John 8.43, Jesus in another conversation. Jesus is having another conversation with Pharisees. He says in verse 43, Why do you not understand what I am saying? Verse 43, is it because you cannot hear? Go down to verse 45, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Verse 46, which of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? Verse 47, he who is of God, notice, hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. It's an issue of believing. It says in verse 11, I give you the, we give you the truth. Notice in verse 11, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. Verse 11 of John chapter 3. Who is the we there Jesus is talking about? It's possible it could be other disciples that are with Jesus. It could be the testimony of John the Baptist and the prophets up till John the Baptist. It could be the Trinity he's talking about. Jesus is saying, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. He's establishing authority here. I'm telling you what I know to be true. I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you along with others who have seen and experienced this truth. Jesus is included in that we, but it's very possible that the we is just uh, the Trinity maybe. Who knows exactly who he has in mind there. The point is Jesus is part of that we. This is an authoritative message that I brought to you that you must be born again. It's not an issue that it cannot be understood. The issue is people will not believe it. That's the issue. And he says you, he says in verse 
verse 2, but you, I say to you, that's a plural you. Verse 11, that's a plural you. Goes back to we know that you are from God, verse 2. Maybe the other members of the Sanhedrin or whoever Nicodemus is speaking for. But this always was Israel's problem, was unbelief. Listen to Zechariah 7, 11. They refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. Like a child, covering their ears. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to receive the testimony. Their fathers in the wilderness, the same thing. They refused to believe. They were stuck in situations, and they were stuck in their unbelief, and they had to wander for 40 years because of their unbelief. Verse 12 of John 3 says, I told you earthly things, and you do not believe. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? If you cannot grasp the small things, how will you understand the heavenly things? He's told them about the kingdom of God. Jesus has told Nicodemus about the kingdom of God. He's told him about birth and rebirth. He's told him about water and wind. If you do not understand these things, how will you ever understand spiritual truths? Nicodemus, you are a teacher of Israel. How is it that you don't understand these things? Verse 10. You are a teacher of Israel. You have Isaiah 46. You have Ezekiel 36. How is it you do not understand these things? You know these things, Nicodemus. You know these things. You just, just do not believe. You should understand. Why is it hard for people to believe? Let's talk about that just for a moment in our remaining moments. What are the obstacles? What are some reasons that people won't believe? I think... I think with religious people sometimes, they think they can work their way to heaven and they're caught in that uh, environment and they, they're happy with that. They're doing fine on their own. It's kind of, kind of a self-righteousness. Uh, and they, they're like Nicodemus. They just think that they can get there on their own. I think a lot of people are like that. I'm very comfortable in my approach to my religion. I'm very comfortable in my approach to how I'm going to get to heaven, and I don't need this born-again stuff. I, I Don't talk to me about that. You see, in, John, in 3.13, if you're still in John 3, 3.13, he says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has ascended from heaven, the Son of Man. That's kind of a hard verse to interpret. But I think the first part of it, no one has ascended into heaven, simply means no one has, gets there on their own. It's the emphasis of that. Nobody gets there on their own, but the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, he's been there. He came from there. He'll show you how to get there. The big obstacle, people might, uh, they might know they're sinners, but they want to get there on their own. I, I, I hear people say sometimes, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And they walk around, Jesus died for my sins. They say that over and over again when you talk about the Christian life. Jesus died for my sins. I get nervous about that statement sometimes because it's much deeper than that. It's much deeper than Jesus died for my sins. It's Jesus died because I'm a sinner. That's why he died. Understand, there's a big difference. It's not just that I committed all these sins and Jesus died for them. That's all true. But the real issue is my nature is a sinful nature. He died because that is what I am. I sin because I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. My sins, yes, there are many. I get that. But my real problem is the root of everything that I'm a sinner. So... People might know that and they think that by somehow I can, my works will somehow take care of that. My big pile of good things will outweigh my bad pile of bad things and I will get to heaven because of all my good things. Remember this about Christianity. Christianity is the only religion that says you don't try to get to heaven on your own. Verse 13, you don't try to earn your way there. You don't try to work to get there. You don't try to find some means of getting there in your own strength. Christianity is the only religion that says it's not what you do, but it's what God has done for you. He descended. 
He descended. He came into the world and he took our sin on himself. He died in our place and paid the ransom that was due to God for our sin. So you you see other religions say, and Christianity is the only one that does this. Every other religion tells you you've got to do something to ascend to heaven. You've got to do something to earn your way there. Christianity says you can never do that. It's what God did for us. He descended. He's been there. And he came into the world to show us the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's another obstacle I think people have, uh, why, they don't, why they don't believe, why they choose not to believe the gospel. Look at John 3 again. Go down to verse 18. They really like their sin more. This is, this is understandable when you consider our nature. But look at verse 18 of chapter 3. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. They don't want the light. They're repulsed by the light. They run from the light. They don't want to be, notice the next verse, they don't want to be exposed. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. He loves his pride. He loves his greed. He loves his lust. He loves his anger. He doesn't want to give anything up. I had a relative who was very honest. A relative was very honest. Before he became a Christian, he would tell Ann and I this. He would say, I don't want to become a Christian because I don't want to have to give up the life I'm living. That's an honest, that's an honest answer. I don't want to give it up. It's not an issue of understanding. I just don't believe that way is better than this way. I understand the gospel. I live in America. I hear it all the time. But the real issue is I don't want to give up anything. I love my sin more Another issue, turn to, well, I'll just read this to you. I've only got nine minutes, so hang on. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. It's, it's a love for the world, and we talked about this a second ago. But the love for the world, another obstacle. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. He, he just wants all the stuff. Um, would not mind having Jesus if he could have the world at the same time. Uh, remember the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, how can I have eternal life? basically was the question. And Jesus says, well, remember, Jesus knows every man's heart. (laughs) And says, well, keep the commandments. He says, well, I do that. Can you imagine anybody answering a question like that? I do that. And then he goes, well, then sell everything you've got and give to the poor. He touched an idol in that guy's heart, didn't he? He touched the idol in that guy's heart because the, the verse goes on to say he was very rich. He loved his wealth more. Jesus pinpointed the issue. That, that's the problem that you have. You love, you love money more. And you can be religious and hide this. The Pharisees hid this. They were so pious in front of everybody. But notice Jesus' commentary in Luke 16, 14. The Pharisees were lovers of money. (laughs) And they were scoffing at Jesus. So I'll just say, you think about obstacles. Obstacles, why don't people believe? It's not information. It's not information. It's heart conditions. 
You love the world. Love your sin. Self-righteousness. And then he goes on from there and uses this Old Testament illustration. Go back to John 3 if you're still there. John 3. Nicodemus, you need the new birth. You need the new birth. You need, you need, here's what he's saying to him so far. You need the new birth. You need to lay aside unbelief. And you need to lay aside everything that hinders, uh, you, need, that hinders you believing. That keeps you unbelieving. You have to notice what he says. And this is how he ends it. You need to look to Jesus. This is interesting. This is interesting. What we're seeing in John 3 is, I need something done to me, born again. I need something done to me. And now this set verse says, I need something done for me. You follow me? This points to Jesus, these two verses. These two verses talk about the cross. Looks what he says. He gives this illustration that Nicodemus would have been familiar. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. So he's talking about an incident in Israel's history in Numbers chapter 21. I don't have time to read all of that to you this morning. But if you go and read Numbers 21 later today, go there and read about how the children of Israel all through Numbers are going through the wilderness. All through the, all through the wilderness and, and they start, and they've been complaining before, but now they're really complaining. It's like the kids in the back seat of the car when you're trying to go on a trip. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? They become disappointed and I mean, impatient. And I want to get there. Why are we going to eat this food? Manna, come on, manna. I mean, they're just complaining, complaining. In Numbers 21, it says they're impatient because of the journey. And uh, they start speaking against God, and they start speaking against Moses with no food. Uh, just, we don't like this anymore. Verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents, fiery serpents among the people, and the serpents bit the people. Like throwing them in the backseat of your car, those two kids that are just going, are we, there? are we there yet? Are we there yet? Right? I mean, it's just kind of like, he just threw them in their midst. God put them in their midst because of their rebellion. Verses 7 through 9 of Numbers 21, Moses said, and finally they realize what they've done. They're getting bit by these serpents and they're dying. People are dying from being bitten by the serpents. And the people realize what they've done and they say, Moses, we have sinned. Please go to God on our behalf and do something. We can't save ourselves. We need help. And Moses goes to God and God tells Moses to make a fiery serpent on a, and put him on a standard, a bronze serpent, put him on the top of a pole and hold him up, lift him up above the people. And the people would look at that. People would have a glance of faith at that. That's what will save me from this torment that was a type of Christ we're told here it wasn't just some accidental incident it wasn't just something that happened happened randomly no that would be a type of what Christ would be he would be lifted up and he says in John 8 he he would be lifted up referring to his crucifixion in John 12 I will be lifted up and will draw all men to myself he was talking about his crucifixion and so that's a picture. That incident in Numbers 21 is a picture. In John 3, the same thing. You will look to him and you will live. That's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So I need something done to me. I need to be born again. I need something done for me. I need the cross, the cross of Christ. It gives us a, the complete picture of all of these. If I'm going to go to heaven, if I'm going to go to heaven, I need to be born again. I need faith in Christ, trusting in Christ. I need to look with an eye of faith toward Christ. Turn to Luke 13. 
I'll close with this. It's not a complicated message, Nicodemus. It's not a complicated message. Understanding is not your problem. It's believing. It's believing. Even church people have a hard time believing it. In Luke 13, he was passing through, verse 22, he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And Jesus said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Strive because it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. Lay aside your self-righteousness. Lay aside your lustful desires. Lay aside your sin. Lay aside the things that hinder you from believing. Lay aside the things that hinder you from going through the narrow door. The rich have a hard time, he said, because they trust in their riches. He said in another place in the New Testament, he says it's, those things can't be trusted in and trust in Christ at the same time. He says in verse 25, once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, talking about the, at the end, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you and say, I don't know where you are from. I don't know who you are. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught us in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. You never were born again. You never looked to the cross. You never turn from your sin and look to the cross. That's the question. Have you been born again? Have you been born again? Nicodemus, the wind did blow on Nicodemus. Eventually in John chapter 8, he's defending Jesus before the Sanhedrin. He wouldn't do that if he wasn't born of God. In John chapter 12, he is with Joseph of Arimathea attending to the body of Jesus. That's in John 12. John, excuse me, John 19, 39. He's attending to the body of Jesus. So the wind did blow on Nicodemus eventually. He did overcome his unbelief and he was born again. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you, God, for these great truths of your word. Thank you, Father, for the evidence that we can have that your spirit has worked in our hearts and lives. It's not always a pretty picture. It's not always perfect. It's not always what we would desire. But God, we know that there's a work going on when we've been born again. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.